Welcome to the sermon podcast of Paley Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Becca Bruner. Well, good morning once again. Uh, My name is Becca. For those of you who haven't met yet, I'm so glad to be with you in worship this third Sunday of Advent as we continue in our series looking at the names of Jesus, following Jesus together, looking and learning from that child in the manger. And as we continue today looking at these names that Scripture gives to Jesus, uh, I want to just ask you to think with me for a second what name you would give. That is to say, when you think about who God is, how do you picture God? What, what attributes do you ascribe to God? What is God like when you think of who God is? And as you come up with kind of what that picture is, whatever comes to mind for you, kind of investigate that a little bit to think about where, where did some of those images come from? You know, some of us, it comes from our parents or or teachers or churches that we grew up in. In my church, you know, my pictures come from those flannel graphs. You remember those? Like, you have to be at least as old as me to remember those. That that was high-tech learning back when I was in Sunday school, where you have, like, the piece of felt, and you put the little Jesus on there, and he moves if you move him. I see the people my age nodding, at least. That's how we got a picture of God, was flannel graphs. Uh, you know, but a lot of it comes from a lot of places, you know, from our own sentimentality and speculation and stories that we've heard over our years, over the years. But the reality is a lot of us come up with pictures of God that, that come from a lot of places other than Scripture. You know, we kind of comes from our own mind's eye. There's a quote I read somewhere along the way that I think kind of captures it. It says, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and we've been repaying the favor ever since. We do this. We've come up with pictures of God in our minds that God looks a whole lot more like us than anything we find on the pages of Scripture. Quite unintentionally, really, we we create a God based much more on our kind of own wishful thinking or fearful thinking sometimes than anything about who God really is. And this matters because it's how we picture God has has a great impact on how we think about ourselves and the world around us. So just a few thoughts, a few examples. Sorry, I'm getting a little scratchy. You know, some people, when they picture God, they kind of picture the attributes of a, what you might call a cosmic policeman, right? Like God is up in heaven and, and he's looking down here on earth and he's making sure that none of us break any of the rules. Do you ever picture God like that? Like God, that's what God is really concerned about is that we just do everything Right. God is this cosmic policeman, and and when we think that, we begin to behave as if the rules are the most important thing in life. The most important thing is that I and everybody else do everything right. And so when we do that, then we, we find ourselves joining or forming churches, groups of believers around us that are all like that, that we all believe and behave all the right ways, and it becomes our goal, our mission to do everything right, to hold the center, and you know, what's really great about it is we get to look out on everybody else who's doing it all wrong. 
We have it right, they have it wrong, and God's on our side. Problem is, we, even when we think that way, we actually know the truth that we don't get it all right. Right? We know we are our, our most harsh critics. We know we're getting everything wrong, but we don't want God to see it. And so, therefore, we, we put on the show even more, and we try to get everything right, and, and we hide everything that's wrong, and we really want to keep God at a distance, because you don't want to be friends with the cosmic policeman, lest he see all of our mistakes. So we live as far from God as we possibly can. Another one, another way that sometimes we picture God, particularly around this time of year, uh, instead of cosmic policeman, God kind of becomes this great big Santa Claus in the sky. He's friendlier, you know, a little, little nicer than the, the policeman perhaps, but the, the job of God really is, is in the interaction we have with him is we tell him everything we want, everything we need, and he provides it, and then we're kind of done. Uh, because he, when God is as Santa Claus, there's some similarities and differences between the policemen. But the thing that's really similar is the distance, right? You know, Santa Claus, how many times does he come to your house? Right? Once a year for just a minute. And my kids have a lot of questions about this. How, how does he do this? How, how does he work so quickly? And I don't know the answer to that. I just know that he does. And that he comes, he wants a year, he drops off the things that we've asked for, and he leaves. Like if Santa were to come knock on your door and be like, hey, I just wanted to talk, like just to get to know you a little bit, like that's not what we want from Santa. That's not the, the, the interaction we're looking for. I would, I would have some trouble with that. So again, some of the ways we picture God that way, that we get to tell God the things that we want, the things that we need, he provides them, but then we're done. There's no interaction. There's no relationship. It's just stuff. Or maybe, you know, there are some who look out on the world and they see kind of the mess of our world, and they think, God, you know, if there is a God, it's kind of more like an absentee, absentee landlord. Right, like sure, if it, we can see that there's a, there's a world, there's creation, there's us, so somebody started it, somebody made it, but he's not all that involved in it anymore. You know, he, he got it all started and he, done. So if the heat stops working or you, know, you get a leak in the roof, you know, God's this absentee landlord. He's not going to show up and fix it. That's up to us. If we want something done, we got to get it done ourselves because God's not going to do anything about it. And so again, different image of God, but the result is the same. There's no connection. There's no relationship. There's no anything because he's, he's, we can go about our world doing our own thing. In fact, we have to because God's just kind of this absentee landlord. I don't know if any of these ring true for you or not, but what we want to do in this Advent season is, is kind of examine what are the ways that we look at God, picture God, think of God, and allow Scripture to speak into that, to say who God really is. And in these names that Scripture ascribes to Jesus, we learn so much about who God is. Two weeks ago, we learned from the prophet Isaiah, who foretold the birth of the Messiah, Jesus, saying he would be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, Jonathan helped us understand more of what God is like through the name that the angel told to Joseph. He said Jesus would be named Emmanuel, God with us. And in the passage we're looking at today, we learn another name, another name that tells us so much about what God is like, 
and that, what that means for us. So let's look together at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Luke tells us, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So like he did with Joseph, the angel announced to Mary that the child to be born would be named Jesus. You know, it's important to remember that in Jesus' day, names functioned differently than they do in our day. Naming a child, uh, for the most part, had greater meaning and depth than when we name our children, at least I can say in our own household. When we were naming our children, I learned a new word from my very smart husband. I, I learned the word euphonious. Kind of nice word. It sounds. It's, it, it sounds like it means. It means sounds nice, sounds pleasant, euphonious. Dave was interested in making sure that that our children had euphonious names, and frankly, I think we accomplished that. Eleanor, Benjamin, Margaret, euphonious. I think they're nice. But that's not the way that children were named in Jesus' day. At least not primarily. In Jesus' day, a name meant something. And a person's name was meant to be a marker kind of of their character, their mission in life, who they were to be and what they were to do as a person in the world. At least their parents hoped for that. When the parent named their child, they, they essentially said, here's what is going to be true of you. Here's how you're going to live. Here's what's going to happen in your life and the difference that you are going to make. And so when the, the angel tells Mary and Joseph to name their t- child Jesus... We want to pay attention. This means something. In the Greek, it's Jesus, which is a Hellenized version of the Hebrew word Yeshua. We pronounce it Joshua. But it's, it's a combination of two Hebrew words put together. The first, Yeshua, put together first is Yahweh, which is the Lord, and Shua, which is the verb to save. And so the name Yeshua is putting those two words together, meaning the Lord saves. That's the name for this baby. That is the essence and the mission of the child that we meet when we first open the New Testament. 
when we open the Bible and we begin to ask that question, what is God like? The Bible tells us, look, look here at this baby and get to know him by name. This is what God is like. God is a God who comes very, very close. And the reason he comes close is he comes to save. In Jesus, we encounter a God who saves. And if that is who God is, if that's what the Bible wants us to know about God, well, there's a secondary truth that we need to learn about ourselves. Because if Jesus came to show us that ours is a God who saves, then that means that we are a people who need to be saved. If Jesus was sent to save, that means that there is something that's happening to us, something that's happening in us, something that's happening all around us from which we need to be saved. So what is that? If in Jesus God came to earth to save us, what did he come to save us from? And what did he come to save us for? Well, in short... Scripture tells us that Jesus came to save us from our sin. In the passage that Jonathan preached from last week, that's what the angel told to Joseph. He said, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Now, Right off the get-go, we hear that and we think, okay, Jesus came to save me from this list of bad things that I'm not really supposed to do, but I kind of can't help but do. Jesus came to save me from those, right? Well, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not so much talking about the list. Sin isn't just a, a, a little oops here and there. Sin's much bigger than that in the Bible. Sin, when the Bible talks about it, is this tendency, this propensity, this, this pro proclivity inside every heart, every person, every person in this room, every person in the world, all of us to put ourselves at the center. All of us have within us this driving desire to put ourselves high up on our very own Throne And left unchecked, most of us will do anything and everything to keep ourselves there. Sin at its most basic level is just human beings saying to God, creations to their creator, you know what? I'm the king. I'm the queen. I am the boss of my own self. Just think back to the, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Their sin wasn't the, the act of eating that fruit that God told them not to. That wasn't really the issue. The, 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 the sin was the reason they did it. You remember that serpent came to Eve, and, and what did he say? He said, oh, if you eat this fruit, you know what's going to happen. You get to be like God. You get to be equal to God. You get to be high up on that throne, and ain't nobody going to be able to knock you down. You know, and frankly, we have been living that way ever since. We want to be like God. We want to be the bosses of our own selves, which as a result has left us by ourselves. Because that's the crazy thing about God. When we tell God, hey, I'd like to do it on my own. Thanks, but no thanks. God lets us. 
He gives us what we ask for, and sin just keeps working its way into you and to me and every human being that has ever lived. We, we get what we say we want. We get to get up on that throne, but we get a whole lot of other stuff we don't want that goes with it. See, what we get up there, we discover that we have that throne, but we're all alone up there. We're isolated. We're separated from God, from each other, and really even from ourselves. See, we do this thing from that, that personal vantage point on the throne. I do, you do, we all do it. We, 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 we think we're high up above everybody else, and so we're able to see where the real problem is, right? The real problem, the real sin, it's all out there. I can, I can see very clearly those people over there. They're the problem. Or that person in power, or that political party, or that person who, who thinks or believes or, or, or just lives so differently than me. It's, it's them. They're the ones who are messing everything up and just running this world into the ground. If only it were so simple. For in the very wise but quite difficult words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, so the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart. You know, I can sit up on my throne and, and point the finger all I want at all the evil and sin and problems out there, but I don't know if any of you had a mom or a grandma that pointed out, you know, when you point your finger out there, how many you have pointing right back in here. You likely heard this story a number of years ago about a newspaper who sent out uh, inquiries to famous, famous, well-known writers, asking them. They wanted to put together a piece for all of them to submit their writings to answer the question, what's wrong with the world today? You know, they figured they'd get this, right? I know what's wrong with the world today. And some of them, probably, some of those writers probably did, but there was one that stands out came from a person, a deeply Christian believer, G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote probably the shortest piece they got. He responded, what's wrong with the world today? And he simply wrote, dear sirs, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Sin's not a problem out there. And it's not just simply that list of bad things we do how and then. Sin is a problem in here. It's in my heart, it's in yours, and it's a problem from which we cannot save ourselves. So the very, very good news of Christmas is that we don't have to. We don't have to save ourselves because Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save us from our sin. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So being saved means we don't have to be alone. Being saved means we don't have to be anxious all the time because, because we don't have to be miserable all the time because it's not our job to judge everybody else out there and it's not our job to judge ourselves. God has determined that there is something about you that is worth saving and that's what he came to do. In God, we, or in Jesus, we see what God is like. Our God is a God who saves, who saves us from our sin and saves us for purpose-filled lives that we get to live with God and with one another. 
You see, if, if the picture of, of sin is all of us all alone up on our, our own little thrones, the picture of what we are saved for, well, that's more like a table. We come down from that throne and we get to sit at a table, at a dinner party, the best dinner party you could possibly imagine, and anybody, everybody is there. Every color, every language, every political persuasion, every culture, every age, every gender, every orientation, everyone is there sharing a meal, talking, laughing, having the time of their lives, and more and more and more people are being added to that table because you're the one inviting them. You're the one scooching over, making room for them. You are reaching up to them as they are sitting by themselves on that little throne and saying, come on down and join us here, to come and join you, but most of all, to join him, to come and feast with Jesus. He's the one who convened this meal, and he's invited us all to come and sit and join him. He's the one who's freed you from sin, and so you're inviting more and more to come because you know that he's going to free them too. Friends, Jesus came to save you from your sin, but that's not where it ends. We don't get just a get out of jail free card and get to go on our way. We get to go out and live a life filled with purpose. You have something good to do with this now freed life that God has given to you. So instead of looking in at all the things that we do wrong, now we just get to look out and go, how do we make it all right? It means we get to throw ourselves into the arms of the one who gave himself for us and said, I'm with you, I love you, I'm here to save you. And then we get to keep those arms open to embrace every other person he came to save as well. Close with this. There's a guy named George Buttrick who was the chaplain of Harvard University for a season, and he tells a story about how students would come to him all the time you know, and plop down in his office as the chaplain and just tell him, you know, I don't believe in God. And he wasn't faced by this at all. He'd smile and sit down with him, and he said, that's great. Tell me a little bit about the God that you don't believe in. Because chances are I don't believe in that God either. Friends, the Bible tells us nothing about a God who is a cosmic policeman or a Santa Claus in the sky or an absentee landlord or any of the ways that we find ourselves picturing God. The Bible tells us about Jesus. Every page points to him. So we can go on making God in our own image if we want to, but if we really want to know what God is like, it's best to just look at Jesus. And to learn from the name that is above all names, our God who saves. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, Jesus, for your most powerful name. In Jesus, we trust. In Jesus, we put our hope. In Jesus, we truly live. We thank you, God, for giving us that clear image of who you are that we can carry in our hearts, both at Christmas time, but all the time, that we can know that you are the God who saves. Saves us from our sin, saves us from our fear, saves us from death. 
saves us for such incredible life filled with meaning and purpose and hope. And God, on this day when we lift up our mission partners in Belize, we thank you for the ways that you empower us to serve and to love and to open our arms even wider to the ways that you are working. We thank you for Marvin and Leticia and for Ebenezer Church, for the ways that they serve their community so faithfully and joyfully and courageously. And pray that you would continue to empower them to proclaim the name of Jesus in word and in deed so that more and more people could be saved through you. Lord, as we prepare in this week to come for the coming of the Christ child into the world and into our lives, I pray that you would give each one of us moments of recognition, of openness, of wonder that Jesus Christ came for me and that we would receive him, that we would love him, that we would worship him. All this we ask in Jesus' most powerful and precious name by praying the prayer that he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.